0: Hello and welcome to Nomads Past and Present, a podcast about nomadism and nomadic peoples around the world and throughout history. I'm your host, Maggie Freeman, and my guest today is Nicholas Morton. Nick is an associate professor at Nottingham Trent University, where he teaches, researches, and publishes on the history of the Crusades in the medieval Near East between the 10th and the 14th centuries. Nick was previously on the podcast to talk about his book, The Mongol Storm, making and breaking empires in the medieval Near East. And he's back again today to share more about his research into the history of the Mongol Empire and expansion into and conquest of the Near East during the Middle Ages. So thank you so much, Nick, for joining me again.
1: Thank you, it's great to be back on the show.
0: So I'm really glad that you were able to come back for a kind of part two um, covering your book because I think we really barely scratched the surface uh, in our first interview. And somewhat um, unusually, I think, for a podcast about this topic, about nomadism of nomadic history, uh, we haven't really covered that much about the medieval Mongol empire on the podcast. I've done several interviews um, with anthropologists about kind of contemporary or uh, modern Mongol um, society and history. Um, but relatively little on uh, medieval Mongol history, which is, I think, uh, what people think of, what comes to mind when they hear Mongols and sort of nomadism in Mongolia in the uh, Mongol context. So I'm looking forward to delving into some topics that we didn't get a chance to cover last time. Um, And first and foremost, I think it would be great to talk a little bit more about sort of the nature of Uh, nomadism and mobility that was practiced among the kind of medieval Mongol conquerors. So if you could talk about what that looked like a little bit, you know, what forms of nomadism were practiced by the kind of early Mongol conquerors, you know, um, what did Genghis Khan's uh, practices of nomadism and mobility look like before he became Genghis Khan? And then how did those practices of nomadism change during that process of conquest and empire and empire building?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, So at the time when Genghis Khan or Timurjin, as he was originally, um, in his early years, he was born and raised into an extremely unsettled situation where you've got warring nomadic communities, warring families. He himself is repeatedly displaced in his early childhood. And you have to wonder what effect that would have on him in terms of his his mentality, his thinking, the way he understands the world and people around him in those formative early years where he's frequently imprisoned or put to flight. But in in and Within that environment, he is ultimately able to weld together this confederation of various different tribes and communities in the, in the in the area surrounding him, and they're not all the same. They have their distinctive identities. But one of the most powerful things that chinggis Khan's able to achieve is the welding of an identity that surmounts those of the various peoples he's conquered into a Mongol people. And so that whilst they may be from various different backgrounds, they may be from traditional rivals of Timurjin and his own ancestors, he's able to create or force that specific identity. And there's lots of things that make the Mongols very distinctive. Um, famously, one of the... Um, one of the key factors of the Mongol identity, it's not clear if it develops under Timijin, Chinggis Khan, or later, is this sense of world conquest mission, that they feel that Tengri, the eternal sky, has given the Mongol people a right to control all human civilization across the planet. Um, there are some previous societies that have expressed something along those lines, but he really does seem to advance this in a very clear way. But there are many similarities too. And so when William of Ruebrooke, a Franciscan traveller and missionary, goes to the Mongols, he observes that the Mongols tie their robes on one side and the Turks tie their robes on the other side, which, quite honestly, if that's the biggest difference he can spot between them, then we can't draw too distinctive a line around the Mongols. There are clearly strong similarities too. Mongols are afraid of lightning. They see it as being a sort of spiritual judgment on them. So are previous or other steppe civilizations. So, again, similarities and differences. There are things they have in common. There are things that set them apart. For me, at least, the thing that I always come back to, not least because it's just reading the accounts of uh, this, it's created a vivid image in my own mind, and that's the Mongols' wagon cities, And by wagon cities, I'm not just talking about a dainty sort of 20 or 30 wagons. I'm talking about thousands. And so you should visualize literally as far as the eye can see lines of wagons drawing vast halls of material, which are effectively the mobile cities of the Mongol Empire. Now, I don't doubt that other nomadic civilizations had wagons as well. But in the account, I mean, I'm reasonably familiar with the Seljuk Turks who invaded the Near East about a century and a half before the Mongols did. Uh, there's no references to something like that. You hear about the tents of the Seljuk Turks, but just this idea of this vast movement of wagons and what that must have looked like and sounded like and felt like. It's It's an astonishing spectacle. And I think it is to some extent, something that makes the Mongol Empire very distinctive. So again, um, a historian's answer, I'm afraid, similarities and differences.
0: Sure. Um, And so to what extent do you think things like, you know, the tent cities that you just spoke about, do you think that those kind of facilitated or supported or allowed in some ways um, the Mongol Empire building projects? You know, I think it's a kind of... um, unusual uh, just thing to have in an empire, right, where I think, you know, as historians, we're used to associating empires and empire building and kind of territorial expansion and conquest, staking a claim on a territory. We associate those things with of permanent cities you know with this kind of with a kind of fixity um, and permanent presence of the empire in space we associate you know territorial conquest and expansion uh, especially in the middle ages with the construction of cities the conquest of cities the construction of fortifications things like that and so you know i understand that perhaps the mongols you know did these things as well, to an extent. Um, But so how would you say that things like the tent cities and these very mobile empires, how did that kind of coexist? Or how did that maybe allow and foster empire building?
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's a sort of Hollywood contention, isn't it? The the warriors gather, they leave from home, their relatives wave tearful goodbyes to them, and they go off and they fight and they either return victorious or they return defeated, and that's the setup. But you're right, it's a different scenario. When Mongol Mongol civilization moves, it will tend to move on block. So it's not just the warriors. It's not just the families. It's their herds. It's everything. It's the totality of their civilization, or at least the society or community around that particular leader. And viewing it from a solely military perspective, that does create a series of advantages because, of course, where most, particularly agricultural-based civilizations, may send an army to go and march off, I don't know, a hundred miles, and. Um, They'll have convoys constantly ferrying food and munitions to that army, which can be very easily cut. Mongols don't have that. They're bringing their food and um, the things they need with them, which means their logistics can't be cut. And they'll be sending out raiders from that hub, from that moving um, wagon city. And that makes them very effective because their population base is coming with them. If they need more troops, well, they've got their population with them. That may not supply them with all they want or need, but it's a great deal better than an army that has to send all the way back to friendly territory to send out reinforcements. And of course, once they've conquered a territory, they just make camp and they stay there and it's very hard to shift them. So all of these things have military applications, but there are cultural dimensions to this too, of course, because they're... They're not just bringing their city but they're bringing the totality their set of beliefs their values their notions of gender their notions of identity their notions of um, daily life all of that is being brought with them and then being imposed on a new landscape and that has a wide range of very interesting permutations because you have to ask well how are they influenced by the areas they moved into and by extension and perhaps putting to one side the sort of the brutality of the conquest, but in the long term, how did they influence those that they overthrew?
0: And so I'd love to talk about sort of Mongol identity a little bit more. Um, and you touched on this earlier, you know saying that um, sources like William of Rubrook ident- you know had this um, uh, kind of visual identifier between the Mongols and the Turks. How else or in what other ways would a kind of member of the Mongols, a member of that kind of in-group, how would they identify themselves? You know, what are the characteristics uh, of what makes somebody a Mongol, essentially, uh, is my question. Uh, is it um, ethnicity? Um, can one kind of become part of the Mongol kind of inner circle through marriage through conversion through you know success on the battlefield what is that um uh what is the nature of who belongs to the mongols during this period
1: yeah so the the us in the mongol sense of the word yes um and it's it's, it's, you get different answers in different sources. So again, returning to William of Rubruck, I, I try not to dwell on him too much, but he, he is an excellent source. But um, he, he got very frustrated because he tried to convert the Mongols. Whenever he tried, they said, well, we can't become Christians, we're Mongols. You come from the land of the Christians, we get that, so you're Christians. We come from the land of the Mongols, so we're Mongols. Your question doesn't make sense. Um and so in that sense, that does seem to be a much sort of clearer marker based on perhaps dynastic descent and things like that. But at the same time, when the Mongols conquer new areas, in many cases, particularly if they've admired the people they've been fighting against, what they will do is they will make them Mongols. And so what you don't get a choice in this. You're, you become, this is what's going to happen to you. And so the way the Mongol army structures itself is the decimal system so squads of 10 within a commander of 100 over them 10 squads of 100 a commander of a thousand over them and so on and so forth Um, and if you are part of a conquered civilization that the mongols want to incorporate in this way then you will be split up from the other people that you know from your friends group or your any existing military or dynastic groupings and you'll be filtered into this system so you'll become part of a group of 10 and probably with complete strangers. And you have to fight, and you have to live like a Mongol, because if you desert in battle, then you do so knowing that your squad of 10 will be killed, executed because of your um, desertion. And if your entire squad deserts, then the company of 100 will be killed. So you don't get a choice in this. You're going to become a Mongol, and you're going to fight for the Mongol Empire, and this is not something that your opinion is being sought after. And Mm. within that context, you are expected to dress... Like a Mongol, and so in one one dimension to this is the Mongols have these incredible hats, it's very very tall and long hats. But so you'd be expected to dress like a Mongol and wear the clothing associated with that identity, and presumably diet, culture, all these other things would go with it. And the Mongols have a very strong and very clear system of values, uh, where things like loyalty is very much praised, theft is viewed with absolute it's, it's absolutely awful, and so is adultery. These things are absolutely not tolerated. And there's a system of beliefs as well, um, cultural taboos, things you do, things you don't do, many of which have some sort of spiritual connotations. For example, if you trip over the threshold to a Mongol tent, you have just committed an incredibly serious um, social slight, one for which may actually put your life at risk. So you are you become part of that system of values, that cultural system. And yes, you do hear about people who can advance within that system, having come from a non-Mongol background, particularly leading wives. And so, if a leading Mongol um, marries you, and you are someone from someone they've conquered, and you know again, the element of choice isn't necessarily there for you. But if you um, if you are forcibly married in this way, mm. and then if you have, for example, a son, particularly if it's an, if it's an, an an older son, then your position can be very senior, and you might find yourself occupying an elite position where you have a serious say on things like the management of a Mongol camp city as a whole, or on, on international diplomacy. And there are examples of this, and so mm. again, it's it's. It's it can happen. It may not be but your your inclusion into Mongol society may not be linked to the element of choice, shall we say. And in fact, in some cases it seems that for many peoples who are brought into the Mongol system along various different routes, this could be extremely traumatic, but once in, it wasn't impossible to climb the, the hierarchy at the same time.
0: And so to what extent um, can we sort of map these processes of uh, sort of incorporation of outsiders into the Mongol Empire onto more like modern concepts of citizenship. You know, this idea of uh, being a citizen of a nation state is kind of an anachronistic one to apply to um, the medieval Near East. But can we think about it in those terms to an extent? You know, did outsiders could outsiders also achieve sort of the same rights the same legal status the same you know i don't know um rights to self expression self defense whatever um as a kind of full mongol you know a mongol by blood and by birth could
1: okay so within mongol society there are perhaps grades in society so if you're part of the imperial dynasty so if you are um for example descended from one of genghis khan's children then that puts you at a status level that other people simply can't achieve, at least not, let's say, if they married in, it's possible that that might be achievable. But then you've got the imperial bodyguard, which again, forms a sort of cadre in its own right. And then you have the broader nature of Mongol society. And um, Yes, I mean, in terms of concepts of citizenship and modern concepts, uh, I've learned to be wary of doing that, really. And and I'll give you a reason why. And that is because the more I've understood about Mongol society, and it's not easy to understand Mongol society because they themselves wrote so little themselves. We don't know about their society from their own hand. We have accounts of Mongol society written by Christian, Buddhist, Islamic, Jewish commentators. But we we are seeing their efforts to grapple with who these people were and how they operated. And what I have come to see is just how different the Mongols were, not just from the 21st century society, but from contemporary societies as well. They really did struggle to get to grips with just how different the Mongols were to them, whoever they were. And so what I've tried to do really is I've self-consciously tried to shed my expectations around what citizenship, belonging, as you say, freedom of speech, where you get to say things, where you don't, where you have to be absolutely silent or in a full agreement, where you have a bit more latitude. That entire matrix of belief and identity and agency, it's so dramatically different under the Mongols that I think to apply any preset norm and to say, well, can we fit it into an existing mold? I would say probably not. And I think a good a good example of this is the um, rather um, tense debate around religious tolerance in the Mongol Empire because the Mongols um, practiced something which some historians have seen as being very recognizable, which is that if you were, I don't know, a Christian or a Muslim in Mongol society, you can practice your faith. You won't suffer persecution. You'll be able to carry out your faith. You'll be able to build religious buildings. You'll be able to serve in the Mongol bureaucracy and so by medieval standards people said look this is an incredible example of religious tolerance and so maybe we should draw a link between modern concepts of religious tolerance and Mongol religious tolerance. And you can see why they might say that but at the same time I've I've struggled with that because the rationale behind it is so different. The Mongols consider themselves to have a mandate to rule the entire planet. That means they have hegemony over every human society and within that every human religion. And so the Mongols, their belief seems to be, at least my reading of it, is that every religion has a degree of spiritual power. And so what the Mongols want, it's, it's not that the Mongols disagree with any religion or even particularly agree with the religion. They just accept that the that religion and particularly its religious leaders have Religious power have, have 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 an ability to interact with the spiritual world as the Mongols understand it, and to make a difference. And so, from that viewpoint, they don't particularly mind whether the religious leader they're dealing with, um, what religion they're from. What they want is that religious leader to to invest that spiritual power into the greater mission of the Mongol Empire and so they want them to pray or intercede or whatever the nature of that religion is with their God, with their gods with their spiritual with whatever their spirituality is to invest that power for the prosperity expansion of the Mongol Empire, for the life and prosperity of the Mongol leader of that particular area of the Mongol Empire, and just generally for the mongol empire's interest and so the point i'm making is that yes it is a form of religious tolerance but it's a religious tolerance that has been arrived at by a very different logical path and for very different reasons and so even if it is something we could say oh actually this is something that we can relate to in the modern day i would actually say try not to relate to it or try to relate to it through a different logic structure
0: Mm, that's really interesting. Um, and so how do you then approach things like this in your, these issues in your writing or in your teaching, you know, because I feel like um, so much of what historians do try to do for better or for worse is to draw parallels to the modern world, to our conditions, to circumstances and events and kind of conditions that we can under stand through our 21st century lens so if your kind of conclusion based on as you said the very limited sources that we have available about the mongol period and especially written by you know mongol hands how do you how do you deal with how do you grapple with that um, without i think taking a kind of completely defeatist attitude of well we can just never understand this. this this can never be explained
1: yeah, it, it does just come back to unraveling the logic. It's not just what they're doing it, but why they're doing it. And sometimes you can be effective in unraveling that logic and sometimes you can't. Sometimes it's just, or you can, you can make a guess, but it's the evidence just doesn't let you do that. But yeah, and I think once you understand the logic and where they're coming from and why they're coming from it, and you've tried to reach that conclusion without trying to judge them or trying to apply modern principles, but just on its own mm-hmm. terms, what are they doing and why? it becomes a great deal more explainable. And normally the Mongols themselves, and this goes not just for the Mongols, but for many medieval or just society people aren't familiar with, um, often they have analogies themselves that they use to explain their world view. And sometimes these can be very helpful. And so what the Mongols do, which is one of the most um, incredible manifestations of Mongol culture, is they have religious debates. So the great card says, OK, we're going to round up some Christian religious leaders and some Muslim religious leaders and some Buddhist religious leaders. and we're going to let them argue with each other. And then we'll make a decision about um, where we think the truth lies based on them. And people, historians uh, have made have made the argument that in some ways this is a control mechanism, because by making them argue amongst themselves and the Mongols standing in just in, in judgment over it, that reasserts their um their over overarching control but there's one story that's always stuck out to me sorry it's not a william of rubric story but it is quite helpful um and that is william was talking to uh, the mongol khan and the mongol khan held up his hand and he said the religions on the face of the earth are like the fingers of a hand and um so I suppose the, the analogy would be that they're, they're separate and yet they in, the, in their own way they are connected. And the way I've always read that analogy is to is that what the Mongol Khan was really getting at is that they're the fingers of the hand, but the Mongols themselves are the palm. The fingers connect into the palm. The palm is the center. This is this is this is this is the, the beating heart of spirituality. The other parts, yes, they have a place, they have a role. They're not valueless, they're not to be ignored. But the centre of it all, that's the Mongol Empire. That is the spirit of what the Mongols are doing. And I think that once you understand those sorts of metaphors, and I'm to some extent extrapolating out a little bit from what was captured in the source, but I think it does help to explain where they're coming from and it makes it easier to explain it you mentioned in a classroom environment. Once you get the metaphor, the rest follows.
0: Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and... Mongol identity change over the course of its interactions with conquered peoples? You know, we've talked about um, the kind of incorporation um, of conquered peoples into the Mongol Empire and those processes and what that looked like. But then what did that process look like in the opposite direction? Um, How did Mongol culture, um, religion, especially, you know, we've talked quite, you've talked quite a bit about uh, the Mongol religion, um, but that is not really practiced today uh, on a wide scale. Um, Certainly not uh, in this kind of world spanning way um, that Genghis Khan sort of uh, imagined or idealized it. So certainly we can assume um, and know um, that Uh, the Mongols themselves adapted um, many elements of the religions and cultures and practices and traditions of the peoples and territories that they conquered. So can you talk about that and maybe give some examples of that?
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, I think a good starting point here is just to acknowledge just how rich the Mongols became. And when people, the stereotype of steppe people, both in the medieval period and in the modern period, is not one of extraordinary wealth. Often it's quite, the stereotype is quite sort of Spartan. Um, But by the time you get to sort of the mid-13th century, the Mongols have conquered the better part of Eurasia. Tens of civilizations, including some really big ones, have fallen to them. And of course, wealth that used to be... um, in temples or palaces, and was never used as as money. It was it was there to make a spiritual or religious um, for, for for significance or uh, as an ornament. These things are now have now been liquefied. They're now usable cash because the Mongols have taken them, and so the Mongol encampment cities have some of the biggest storehouses of money or at least tradable wealth anywhere on the planet at this time. And the key point is that they're not just going to keep hold of this stuff. They want to spend it. And they're not stingy either. They're prepared to pay very good prices for people who bring the things that they want to them. And that's why people like Marco Polo ended up going to the Mongol court, because it wasn't him in the first instance, it was his father and his uncle, they realised the potential here. And so they went to sell precious stones to the Mongol court and they did very well out of it. So then Marco Polo went himself. But what you should see or what you should imagine, I think, is you have these big camp cities where the Mongols, a particular Mongol leader is, with a huge amount of disposable cash. And of course, merchants and traders, they, they know this and so why would they go anywhere else? And so they bring whatever the Mongols want, because it's naturally the next question is, okay, if they've got this money to spend, what do they want to spend it on? And so these merchants then bring whatever the Mongols want, in any quantity, to the Mongol court, and there they are rewarded with enormous amounts of wealth, way beyond what they'd get at, say, market value. So, the trade routes, the commercial arteries of Eurasia, start to fundamentally rewire themselves around the centre points of Mongol control. And we're talking about this on a continental scale because that is the sheer, the sheer magnitude of their purchasing power. Now, this might seem like a strange way to start answering your question, but the point is that in doing so, the Mongols were able to buy not just what they need, but what they want and what they want is often fairly distinctively linked to their prior culture. They want tents but they don't just want tents made from felt and wood, as in their traditional culture they want tents that are made of incredible textiles and fabrics, cloth of gold we hear about one tent that had golden tent pegs and some of these tents could accommodate several thousand people so we're talking about a substantial step change. Yes, Mongol culture is still recognisable in that they're still expressing their domestic architecture in ter- in, in similar terms. But th- in any other in any other respect, it's changed dramatically because now they can acquire what they want. So if they like fabrics, they'll have them. If they want to have gold nails, they'll have them. If they want to wear clothes covered in gems, or pearls particularly, are something that they're very interested in. They'll have them and so that purchasing power changes their culture because they start to get aspirational about what they want, and of course they can have it because they can afford it. So mm-hmm. Mongol culture changes dramatically f- through that, in that respect, but it has an, another equal dimension to it, which is it's not just merchants going to the Mongol Empire, because by the mid-13th century it's perfectly clear not just to conquered civilizations, but also to many unconquered civilizations or to client states. The Mongols aren't going to be stopped. They've been winning battles consistently for about 50 years. You're not going to stop them. This isn't going to happen. And so, as a result, the nature of international diplomacy, and indeed diplomacy within the Mongol Empire from the various conquered civilizations, it fundamentally shifts. There's no point resisting the Mongols, there's no point saying, I don't know. We, we, we've been subjugated. We have to band together in a rather Hollywood way. We have to sort of resist our overthrow. That's not go- you're not going to win. And so the tactics switch. People stop trying to resist the Mongols, and they start trying to work with the grain of Mongol culture. They try and win favour with Mongol leaders. They try and win the support of people with influence because if you can't beat them in battle you might as well try and win their favour so that you can win additional concessions. Perhaps if the Mongols like you, they won't invade you. Or perhaps they'll give you a relatively lenient deal if you became a client state. Or if you're already conquered, perhaps they'll give you preferential treatment, not like your rivals next door who don't get preferential treatment. So perhaps you can work out your internal rivalries by winning favour with Mongol leaders. So again, there's a logic to this. It's a logic of subjugation. But it is a logic. And the net result of this is that Mongol, um, the Mongols' um, centre points begin to become besieged by people seeking the Mongols' goodwill. It doesn't matter how brutal the Mongols' overthrow was. Because you can't resist them, the logic turns to, you better win their favour then. And among these are many religious leaders and representatives of different religions from across Eurasia. And in some cases, they want to win preferential treatment for their faith group. But of course, the real prize, what would really be a game changer, is if you can persuade a Mongol leader to convert to your particular religion. Because then you could advance your religion's interests and therefore safeguard your own community across the entirety of either the Mongol Empire or at least that part of it. So there are substantial efforts made by religious leaders to make themselves useful because if you make yourself useful you start to get into the good graces of the senior figures and then perhaps you can win them over and everyone's trying it and so for example an armenian monk tries to persuade um, the mongols or some mongol leaders to convert to christianity on the basis that he, he claims to have seen a vision whereby a golden tablet was received from heaven which said that the Mongols would have control over the earth provided they convert to Christianity. Now, what's happening there is that the Mongols' own lig- legends are being interlinked with this Armenian monk's attempts to convert the Mongols. And so you can see what they're doing and why they're doing it. Um, and in some regions, the Mongols convert to We hear of examples of Mongol conversion to Christianity. We hear about examples of Mongols converting to Buddhism. But in the long run, um, in the Near East, the Mongols convert in the long run to Islam and the same in Western Eurasia, what today would be parts of Western Russia and Eastern Europe. And in China, the Mongols convert to Buddhism. But it has to be said, it's not just a sort of turn-in-the-road conversion. There's a very, very long period. And again, you see this with many other uh, nomadic cultures, that when they convert, it's not just that they they practice their previous beliefs on one day and then convert on the next to another religion. There's often a, a long crossover period where they hold both beliefs simultaneously, or elements of them. And so, you can see quite a long process. There are some key moments, but nonetheless, the process of Mongol conversion, in, for example, in the Near East to Islam, it takes a very long time. Chingis Khan retains of special significance, even, though, even, even when that's quite advanced, and there are still elements of um, traditional Mongol belief that are held for a long time after they have become nominally and then more actively um, Islamic.
0: And so um, uh, in our previous conversation um, you know we talked quite a bit about sort of the this long process um, uh, of Mongol conquest and expansion um, and you know as you, uh, title it um, in the title of your book, The Mongol Storm, which, you know, sort of then as you write about, in reality, um, was actually as opposed to being this kind of like, um, just suddenly, you know, suddenly they're here blitzkrieg kind of thing um, was actually this Uh, much longer and kind of more um, negotiated and sort of tentative and haphazard um, encounter um, between uh, the Mongols um, and the Near East. Um, We didn't get a chance really to talk about sort of the end or the kind of collapse of the Mongol Empire. So I wanted to bring us up to that point um, and ask, you know, in light of everything that we've talked about, At what point would you say that the Mongol Empire ends, you know, uh, given how extensive it is, given how far its influence, um, sort of Mongol influence reaches across continents? uh, At what point can you, would you as a historian say, this is where the Mongol Empire is no longer, like I'm putting the final nail in the coffin? Here and I know that's a really horrible question to ask a historian, but I'm going to ask it anyways and just see how you respond.
1: Well, I think it's about four seventeen p.m. on the seventh of March. No, <laughs> um, it's it's, an, it's a very it's a as you say it's a very hard question, but it's also a very interesting one. Um, and I think and again I'm going to focus on the Near East because that's the area that I, I know most about, um, but. There's been a lot of research on this. There's been some particularly good research by Peter Jackson, but I think for me at least, you can see a sort of an underlying progression here, which is that the Mongol Empire gets really big, really big. And so it's, it stretches from the Pacific coast down to the borders of India and beyond the borders in some cases, and then all the way across to the Mediterranean coast down to the borders of Hungary and Poland. And, you just, and even though the Mongols have ways of managing communications over enormous distances, particularly with their fast horse system, which enabled them to send messages over a very long period, over a very long stretch, even in a single day. It's too much to manage. And so the various sons of Chinggis Khan are given areas which, whilst still within the Mongol Empire, are basically parts of their jurisdiction. And um, they're called Ulu, And so these various sons have different Ulu across the Mongol Empire. But as is often the case with siblings, that um, inviting them to share things of value, uh, that that can be a little bit tricky. Uh, And and you're looking at this on an imperial scale. And so disputes begin to break out about the jurisdictional boundaries between the various different Ulu, to what extent the Mongol Empire proper has a right to intervene and administer areas that are within the ulugh a particular mongol dynasty and then of course as the dynasties themselves acquire a more of a local identity as they take on local culture and religion and as, as there the generations pass they begin to distance more and so you have sort of growing fissure lines within the mongol empire between these various dynastic groupings which ultimately do break down until the mongol empire whilst it may they there may still be a nod towards the idea of unity it is essentially a cluster of independent territories which is where you get the rise of things like the golden horde in western uh, western asia or the ilkhanate in the near east or the great khans in china there are some other ones as well as the mongol empire begins to break down but put where it ends that's that's difficult i mean just in the near east for example it begins to go its own way from the 1260s when a big Mongol invasion army led by the brother of the great khan called Hulagu asserted claim to that region and then became involved in very um, prolonged conflict with the Golden Horde to the north over jurisdiction over the near east essentially um, over time the Ilkhanate in the near east it took on a very much much of a local identity the rulers converted to Islam in many cases. The sense of similarity and shared values seems to have declined somewhat with other Mongol rulers. And then the Ilkhanic collapsed itself and it collapsed into various different Mongol um, leaders, but also many local nomadic peoples or local factions also managed to assert themselves. And so it becomes a sort of a jigsaw puzzle or a quilt of different, different smaller territories, some of which have or retain some kind of Mongol identity, some of which don't. And then soon you know, afterwards, just because it's not complicated enough, you have a new invasion out of Central Asia by uh, Emir Timur, um, who then reinvaded the region, but Timur himself has adopted he, you know, his his cultural identity is itself complex. And so the Mongol Empire seems to shift from being an empire to being smaller empire luts to being more of a milieu, really, where you have you can't really sh- say where the empire begins or ends, either geographically or chronologically, but its ideas and identity have entered into the mix of what's going on in the region. And so, again, it's a, a rather an academic answer, I'm afraid. I can't say yes or no, but uh, that's the best I can do, I think.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I, I like that as an answer um, of thinking about um, what becomes of the Mongol Empire is that it just kind of turns into uh, one strain or sort of one ingredient in the sort of melting pot uh, of cultural and religious and ethnic differences and diversity that was um, the medieval Near East. And I think that's a good way of kind of thinking about um, the Mongols without exceptionalizing them too much, um, as being kind of too different um, from their surroundings and from the territories that they entered. And so that kind of leads me into my next question, um, which is around the fact that uh, I think historically and culturally, we do tend to exceptionalize the Mongols um, in ways that to me as someone who is far from an expert on this topic um, can seem unproductive historically. Um, And we've talked about, or we've touched a little bit on, you know, the Mongols as representing, um, you know, sort of one example in a larger historical phenomenon of this kind of invading nomadic steppe conqueror um, that there is that there is a sort of trope Um, and so on the one hand there's a tendency to just kind of cast the mongols in that mold and to see them as the kind of culmination of that kind of historical lineage in the vein of the scythians and the huns and then they're followed shortly afterwards by the timurids that there's kind of this almost dynastic um legacy um, of these, you know, conquering barbarians, these nomadic marauders um, overtaking, you know, settled civilizations. Um, But then on the other hand, for for whatever reason, I'm not quite sure, the Mongols stand out from that lineage um, and are kind of held apart um, by historians and in our, I think, contemporary imagination as different somehow from those nomadic empires that came before them and ones like the um, Timurids that came after them. So this is not really a a fully articulated question in my own mind, uh, but I guess I just wanted to get your sort of take on this phenomenon as a historian of this period, you know, do you think that there is something sort of unique about the Mongols if we take them as representing this kind of historical phenomenon of the nomadic empire? Is it worthwhile to kind of hold them apart from that trend and to, um, to, to exceptionalize them in that way?
1: Uh, well, I think you've done a quite a good job of answering your own question. Really. <laughs> 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 I, I agree. Um, I agree that I, mean, I agree with everything you've said in the sense that, um, yes, you could place them in the long line of the Seljuk Turks and the Avars going all the way back to all the various other nomadic peoples who have conquered their peripheries over time. And you're also right, the Mongols seem to go so far beyond that. Um, the two things that, that stick out to me, though, which... Tends towards. I, mean, I agree with both points. So the Mongols shouldn't be seen as sort of this an island unto themselves. They are part of mu- a much much broader tradition. But there are two things I think the Mo- that really happen with the Mongols in a way that you get to a much lesser degree with other um, conquerors or peoples from the Central Asian steppe region. Um, the first one is the sheer size of the Mongol Empire is important, and the fact that it's stable enough for a long enough period for those diplomats and traders to go from one end of it to the other. And so people like Marco Polo, Ibn Battuta, or from the Mongols' own perspective, you know, they send emissaries from Mongol territory to Scandinavia because the great Khan likes their birds of prey, and they can do that, and why not? And so suddenly you have these merchants and missionaries and traders and diplomats covering enormous distances. And for my money, at least, the thing that really matters in that is that when these people return home, they're bringing news of places that their their, their own community knows nothing about. It's it's the sort of the here be dragons zone of the map. It's just a blank space. They don't know what's out there. And I can only imagine it would have, the only analogy I can think to draw would be if for some reason someone is able to travel to, I don't know, Mercury or Jupiter and see these things in person and then come back and tell us what they're like. And just what a revolutionary effect that would have on the rest of us in the sense of our not just our knowledge of the solar system, but our sense of place within it. Um, and I think that you have something of that order with the Mongols, not just for the people the Mongols impacted, but for the Mongols themselves. Everyone's horizons are being driven back dramatically. And that changes their sense of identity, their sense of worldview, their sense of horizon. And that's powerful. It's And I think it's one of those things that the more you dwell on it, the more powerful you, you see it as being. But... It's not just knowledge that's being transmitted along these networks. Another thing which historians, will they're arguing and they're debating, but it seems to be certainly an important factor. And there's some fabulous work being done at the moment on the Black Death. And that was transmitted across not just Eurasia, but research is increasingly showing into Africa as well. The the sheer speed and um, impact of the Black Death historians, and there's some, some wonderful research being done by people like Monica Green on this, uh, showing just how just how much, how, how rapidly this was spread. And it does seem that to some extent at least, it's the Mongol Empire that's providing a network along which the Black Death can travel. Now it's not doing the Mongols aren't doing it deliberately, of course. But because such distances can be covered, you have to wonder whether that's playing a role in aiding the transmission. And the Black Death has to be seen as an exceptional event, given the sheer scale of its mortality and therefore its commensurate impact on every single society into which it came into contact, whether that society is in the Near East or Central Asia or the Far East or Europe or Africa or anywhere else. So there is something deeply exceptional about that event. And another Factor here is the fact the Mongols conquered China. Now, of course, previously nomadic conquerors had tried, and some, and but never to this extent, not even close. And so suddenly China, which had some very distinctive technologies, which other people didn't, suddenly those technologies are now available to other civilizations because, again, they're being transmitted along the Mongol networks. And the classic example there would be gunpowder. And gunpowder is significant not just in that it changes the face of military history, but gunpowder fundamentally changes the way. Once it's been thoroughly introduced, it changes so much. It can change things right the way down to senses of identity or balance of power or even culture and even gender norms. Gunpowder's impact is seismic on the societies it touches, and so, therefore, that really does have to be viewed as a game-changing moment in global history. And the Mongols, again, not for good reasons, but for probably for inadvertent reasons, it, they 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 play their role in bringing this about, or seem to.
0: Mm. Thank you. is a very um, nuanced and historically <laughs> grounded answer to my very messy question. <laughs>
1: um,
0: I feel like there's still so much more that we could talk about, uh, but sure. we're, I think, at the end of our time today, so okay. we'll save it for part three. Um, so thank you so much again uh, for coming on to talk to me again. Um, I learned a lot. Um, once again, um, so I appreciate you taking the time to come on and share your research um, and knowledge about the Mongol Empire with us.
1: My pleasure, thank you so much.